hearts to receive the implanted word. We pray for the church in this community, God. I'm so thankful that this week, getting to be with so many of the pastors in the community in a prayer retreat time, away, praying and seeking you together across denominational lines, some 15 different pastors together, believing for God what you want to do in this community, reaching lives, touching lives, meeting needs, and that the name of Jesus would be magnified as the church unifies and as we seek to answer your prayer that you pray, Jesus, in John 17, that we would, we would be one. And in the process of being one, people would see who you are. And so, Lord, may they see you. May they see you. God, be glorified, blessed, we pray, and anoint the remainder of this service and our time together. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of these things in Jesus' strong name. And everyone said a strong amen. 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 Well, hey, it's good to be in the house of God this morning. Before you're seeing it, will you hug and love on someone around you? Welcome home. We're glad you're with us. Enjoy some fellowship.
few highlights this morning. As always, make sure to have your bulletin and take a look at that and to uh, just make sure you have all of the activities that are coming up, the events that are coming up, the services that happen throughout the uh, week that uh, you know what they are and participate with them. A few highlights here in your bulletin is we have a church camp out scheduled in July. All right. We have a church camp out scheduled in July for all the campers, they said. That's right. That's going to be July 11th through the 13th. And starting next Sunday is when you can uh, register and reserve your spot. And it is a first come, first serve basis. Second highlight I want to uh, bring to your attention is the Wichita Community Dinner. And that takes place on Friday, the 17th of this month. And last month, we anticipated a huge turnout based upon um, projections that the community center had uh, set for us. We didn't get nearly the amount of community members that we anticipated. However, we know that when we put ourselves out there, we work and we provide an opportunity for real to interact and to hear the good news, that the Lord brings those who needed to hear. Three individuals gave their heart to the Lord because of that dinner, amen? We anticipate the Lord at work whenever we, uh, we step out there in faith and say, Lord, we're going to go out there and provide a meal and just love on our community members. And the Lord and His Holy Spirit will minister to them uh, more than we will ever know. And so make sure uh, participate in that and be a part of that. It's a great community outreach event. And so we are grateful to just uh, be in the Lord's presence this morning. And I'm grateful for Pastor Dave and his love and his service and ministry to us. Thank you, Pastor Lucy, we love you. Sarah, we love you. And we are praying with you guys. It's been, it's been a long road. But Floyd is with Jesus. He's in his presence. He's seen him face to face. Come on, is that epic? What a great hope we have in Jesus. Praise God. Praise God. Well, it's good to be in God's house. Amen. Amen. Well, I have sermon notes somewhere in this thick. That's how that. Michelle, were you just looking at me over there thinking, why aren't you sitting over here? Yeah, well, I, 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 did, a little, I did a loop this morning. That's fun. Uh, John chapter 6, if you're turning in your Bibles, I encourage you to do so. And I know I got it. I want you. <laughs> Uh, how about those blazers? That's what I'm talking about. I'm not even a full-fledged blazer fan. But I'm close. I'm close. I'm close. Uh, yeah, so I had dinner. I had dinner over... Uh, wait, oh, yes, junior hire. If you're a junior hire, you can uh, make your way with Joel Leckold in the back there, and all junior hires are migrating if they haven't already done so. Uh, there's some coming your way. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Olivia, for that uh, directional arm. That was beautiful. So uh, we had dinner on Friday night at 6.30 over our dear friends, the Silers. Many of you know uh, Brian and Teresa, they have been a part of our fellowship, honestly, from day one. Day one. And uh, like Charlie and Linda Schaefer, kind of their day oneers. And um, 
So they live out in Sandy, and so they've been connecting uh, with a local fellowship out in Sandy as they moved out there. Uh, however, they immediately expressed how much they missed Hillsiders at home. So I said, well, you know, we're only 15 minutes away. So they, they said that they'd be joining us after they do the reading with us. All that being said, Bert, we did it at 6.30 so that we could watch the Blazer game. And because of some technical difficulties with their service, we did not get to see the Blazer game. I know, that's okay, it's okay. We had phenomenal fellowship. It was just so very, very rich. I got in the car, my wife and I got in the car about 9 o'clock-ish, 8.55, and we're making our trek back in. I thought, oh, i got to find out what's going on in the Blazer game. So I hit my voice to text button, and I said, Wesley Ransom, and then I clicked his name, and then I said, dude, what's happening in the Blazer game? And the uh, immediate response, he said, it's 100 to 148 seconds. I'm like, dude, send me moment by moment, and the next text is 102, 102, there's 1.8 seconds. I'm like, what? We're going into overtime, baby, let's roll. Because I knew I would be pulling up in front of my house by the time overtime started. I'm like, yeah. So we pull up in front of the house. Overtime's just going to start. Run in the house, kick on the TV, and we watch the whole game. We saw like four quarters. I'm like, what? Four overtime. Who just happened, right? And what, what a great turnout, right? I mean, I hit all emotional. In the spectrum, I hit all of the emotions, right? I mean, I was up and down on my chair. I, my dog, you know what's that? I did. I mean, hair was falling out. Listen, my dog is now schizophrenic. Amos <laughs> is 17 years old, and we've always taught him that clapping means something, right? So, I mean, I'm getting so excited. I'm like, dude, he's jumping up. He's like, am I supposed to go to the bathroom now? No. no. And then he, was, then he thought he was in trouble, and he's got his tail under, and he's running it. And Kim's like, okay, stop clapping. So, I mean, it was just very, very exciting. It was exciting, wasn't it, Pastor Dennis? Hey, I know, listen, we were talking in the kitchen before service. Linda said to me, she said, man, today at 4 o'clock, the whole city's going to stop. And all satellites are going to be on overload. They're going to start falling out of the sky because of the activity. It was crazy stuff. So, Portlanders love the trailblazers. I mean, it's a big deal. And I, and I really do love basketball. And I know we're not in church today to hear about basketball. Can I get an amen? Amen. <laughs> There's a ring in my ear. <laughs> uh, <how laughs> it could be. Okay, so however, uh, it was something to know. I, um, I coached football for a lot of years. And there is something decidedly different from a fan versus a player. The fan versus the player. And I think that's a significant contrast to just contemplate for a moment. You see, the game, game time, it is the competition between the two teams and the players. And that's a big deal because there's that competitive nature. But event day is for the fans, right? I mean, the fans, they... They'll spend big money, they'll go down, and I mean, how many of you have ordered the hot dogs that are like $7.95? You say, I would never do this again in normal living, but I'm here, and you know, I know it's like going to the movies and buying popcorn for 13 bucks. Who does that, right? I mean, you can jolly pop at, you know, at Rite Aid for like a buck 98 and have six packs and put them in your microwave and have the same experience. But we do it because it's, you know, that day, it's the event. 
Well, the win is not actually determined on game day. I want you to hear that for a moment. The win is not determined on game day. Now, I mean, I know the score is, right? I mean, if it's uh, 105, 102, or whatever the final score, 140, 137, whatever that final score is, that determines the winner. But the win is determined way before that. Way before that. For the fan, it's that moment. But for the players and the coaches, it starts preseason. Preseason. Now, I coached high school football for 12 years. And we had a pre. As soon as the football season ended, the next one began. And preparation began. And we would encourage all the players you've got to be in the weight room and you've got to start doing all your pre prep stuff for them, right? I, when I played football, I played 11 years of football. And I remember as soon as the season was over, I pulled out the jump rope and I started skipping rope. And I started lifting weights again, heavier weights and heavier weights and heavier weights. You just do all of that prep to lead up just to the very first game, let alone all the practices that will start in late summer, early fall. Preparation, preparation, preparation. The fan is not part of any of that. I have a Kind of a well. Let me let me tell you just a little bit of the preparation before I tell you my one of my favorite players in the NBA. Uh, I was as a coach. I was a fundamentalist. I'm a fundamentalist. So I um, everything is based on the fundies. We call them the fundies, uh, and it's footwork. Everything is footwork. Now I'm an offensive line coach in football, and so it's all footwork. And if you have the wrong step. The very first thing you do, if you have the wrong stance, it's going to, all kinds of things can go wrong. And so the, the fundamentals is a pressure thing. So preseason, it was lifting. We did SAQ drills. SAQs, does anybody know what SAQ is? Speed, agility, quickness. You know what that's, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, that's a big deal. Uh, we did jump ropes. We did plyo boxes. We did stretching. We did Saturday films. We did game day type preps, coaches meetings, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And all that stuff mattered for game day. And so, I tell you this to tell you that I know, as a, just as an assistant coach that coach was volunteering at the high school, I know my prep with the players was at least 17 to 20 hours a week before Friday even arrived. All of that leading up to the players themselves. They had the extra lifting, just the food that they would intake. We would tell players, you got to remember this, but we would tell players, what you play football on Friday night is what you eat for dinner on Wednesday night. Eat a good dinner Wednesday night. Then when it comes to Friday afternoon's meal, just pound a bunch of carbs. Because that'll be quick conversion and that'll give you a little bit more energy boost. But what you eat Wednesday night. And so all of this crap for game day. The difference between a fan and a player is the fan is not engaged in any of that prep. Any of that prep. When I played football at Portland State University, I lifted weights three hours a day, five days a week. Just in the weight room alone, let alone how much time I spent on the jump rope and doing SAQ stuff. And so it's crazy preparation. Crazy oh. prep. So I have a, one of my favorite basketball players of all time. How many of you are Celtic fans in the house? Do we have any Celtic fans? No, of course not. We won't believe it. Oh! Although Larry Bird is one of my favorites, but that's not who I'm going to talk about today. Ray Allen. 
Syracuse and Celtic of Celtics. Anyway, he had 18 years in the NBA. And here's the deal. I don't think there's anybody who had a regimen like Ray Allen. Ray Allen, I think he's never had fast food. Yeah, I mean, that's like, wow. Never had fast food. Ray Allen started basketball like at four years old. And the guy was a machine, and he decided when he had a growth spurt in high school that he was going to put all his energy into basketball. And it meant everything from his diet to how he slept. All, I mean, it was all this prep so that by the time he went through University of Connecticut, he went in the first round draft, fifth pick, and he was in the NBA with the Bucks his first year. And then I think he went to the Seattle Supersonics. Do we have any Supersonic fans from back in the day? Come on, come on, come on. Okay, what are you doing again? Go ready, come on. All right. And then, too bad they went to OKC and then lost the Blazers. <laughs> so, and then he goes to the Celtics. And this guy's regiment, I mean, he, listen, his game day regimen never changes. In fact, he's, he's OCD, OCD about everything. He got into conflict with players that sat in wrong, their wrong assigned seats on the airplane. He's like, yeah, you've got to sit in the right seat. Because it matters what we do. His game day, I mean, his meals game day, blueberry pancakes in the morning. Can I get an amen? <laughs> uh, his, his dinner before even his scheduled naps, it's part of his regimen. He'd go, to the, he'd go to the gym and he would shoot baskets. 200 baskets an hour. That's more than three shots a minute. He, if he missed a free throw in a game, he would go in and he would shoot until he got above 145 out of 150 shots. He'd just keep shooting until he hit that number. Or that ratio. I mean, it's crazy, crazy record stuff, right? The fans, most of us knew nothing about that. And yet, on game day, it's a big deal. Fan. The difference between a fan and a player, the chasm is big. If you're a Blazer fan and you're already thinking about 4 o'clock and what you're going to have for food and snacks and all that kind of stuff, you're doing prep for like a two, two and a half hour period, maybe three hour period if it goes into double overtime, triple overtime. Quad over time. That'd be amazing again, right? But it might be a three and a half hour, four hour deal. But at the end of the day, your prep versus their prep, totally different. Totally different. Why would I talk about that this morning? Chapter 6 of John reveals to us a chasm. And I would call the chasm the chasm of unbelief in the heart of believers, in the heart of followers. But before we get there, I want to tell you a story. How many of you know the name Charles Blondin? Anybody know Charles Blondin, that name? Charles Blondin is a famous man. In fact, his fame came in 1860, when on September 4th, or 14th, he walked on a two-inch rope across Niagara Falls. Yeah, Charles Blondin. An amazing acrobat who began his training at four years of age. Phenomenal. Phenomenal balance. Phenomenal work ethic. Phenomenal commitment to what he did. It was early in his life that he 
had the aspiration to walk on a rope 160 feet above the rocks and the water and that just swirl beneath Niagara Falls that he would cross some 11,000 feet on a two-inch rope. I mean, I just can't even imagine by the time he got to the middle how far down it would be sagging to where he'd be walking uphill on the other side. I mean, it's just crazy kind of stuff. The pole that he had was 26 feet in length, weighed 50 pounds. When was the last time you walked 1,100 feet carrying 50 pounds? In his lifetime, he walked across Niagara Falls more than 300 times. Now, early on, he would walk across and walk back. And he, would, he began to do crazy things that would raise the level of interest. Like, uh, he, one time he did it blindfolded. What? I mean, this is crazy. One time he did it carrying in an oven. He stopped in the middle, set up the little oven, baked an omelet, lowered the omelet down by a rope down to the, uh, the whatever the boat is, something that it is, and fed someone an omelet that he had cooked, wheeled it all back up, packed it back up, and walked across. Another time he went across, he sits down, lays down, Feeds the rope down, hoists up a bottle of champagne, has a glass of champagne, sends everything back down, gets up and walks back across. They're like, this is amazing. The guy's balance is crazy good. He never had life insurance, because no one would take him. <laughs> one time early on, he went across with a wheelbarrow, with a sack of potatoes in it. And he walked across, and as he got onto the other side, he said, how many of you believe that I can go across this tightrope 11,000 feet, 160 feet in the air, with a person in a wheelbarrow? And the crowd roared, yes, we believe. You are the greatest. We believe. He said, okay. Who will get into the wheelbarrow? No one got in the wheelbarrow. Although they said they believed, they did not believe. They did not believe. Their mental ascent was valid until the rubber met the road when you get in the wheelbarrow. That's today's sermon title. Will you get into the wheelbarrow? Will you get into the wheelbarrow? Will you pray with me this morning? Father, we ask in the next few moments as we look into the perfect law of liberty and we consider our own belief and as we would even consider our own unbelief that we would hear what your spirit is saying and we would receive the invitation to get into the wheelbarrow and to live the life of faith in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Who will get into the wheelbarrow? As we shift gears and we look at John chapter 6, by way of reminder, this chapter is one 24-hour period, one 24-hour day in the life of Jesus. The Gospel of John is about 21 days total in the life of Jesus. 
this chapter, which is the longest chapter, 71 verses, is one 24-hour period. And so what is happening in this one full day, Jesus is dealing with from the very onset unbelief. And it's a theme that he has been really navigating since chapter 3. And this is about, this is about one year before he will be crucified. Chapter 7 is about six months later, and so it's about six months before he's going to be crucified. And these are little pictures and little snippets of his life. So this day, this one day of the 1,275 days roughly of his public ministry, this day represents literally like less than a three-quarters of a thousandth of a percent. I mean, it's a small amount of time, and yet significant. In fact, in light of John's kind of final statements in his gospel, he said many other things Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. Not only the things he said, but the things that he did. He said, but none of those are recorded. There's not enough volume of book on the planet to contain all of those things that he did. But what is written is written that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Christ, the Son of God. These things were written that we might believe. Believe. So, Jesus has fed the 5,000. You know the chapter opens up with the people are, it, you know, it starts off with Passovers kind of coming and uh, the people are following and they need food. There's 5,000 men, so there's likely 15,000 plus people. He looked at Philip and he says, Hey, Philip, you're from Bethsaida. Uh, where can we get bread for all these peeps? And Philip's like, uh, Yeah, no Costco, right? Uh, so there's not enough money in our midst to buy enough bread for everyone to get like a little morsel. And he shows up and says, Hey, there's a little out of them. He says, five little muffins of barley and some couple of fish. But what is that? And like the number of people are here. Jesus has the people sit down and says, let the people sit. And he blesses the food and he distributes the food to the disciples and the disciples distribute the food to the people as much as they want. As much fish as they can eat. And when it says they were all filled, it means that they were filled to like, I'm like, Thanksgiving meal. <laughs> Pie, not for seven hours. Well, this one's digested. I mean, they were just stuffed. And then he says, collect it all up. And they collect 12 baskets. It's like one basket of crumbs for all of the doubting disciples. What is this in light of all of these people? Philip, where would we get? I mean, we can't, no, we don't have enough money to buy food for these people. And Jesus asked these questions knowing ahead of time what he was going to do. But he was testing them. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? And then he sends them in the boat across the lake. And of course, you know the story, right? There's a storm in the middle of the lake. The wind came through. And if you knew the terrain that is there, this, the lake, there's a familiar lake uh, where Capernaum and these spaces are, that there's mountains and the wind comes whipping through there. And the tempest that can grow in the center of this lake is massive to where experienced fishermen fear for their life. In fact, there is a legend, and there was a legend in that first century and the earlier centuries that if you were going to be drowning on that lake, the last thing you would see was a ghost walking on the water to come and get you. And so you can imagine the terror that they felt seeing 
off in the distance amidst the storm, here's this figure walking, and they perceived that it was a ghost. If the legend is accurate, what they were thinking is, we're doomed! We're going down! And so when Jesus says, do not fear, it is I, they're like, oh, yes! Get it done! We're safe! I have to keep doing this on my ear, because the microphone keeps popping off. Sorry, do you see me doing this? Too nervous, I guess. <laughs> and so, Jesus walks on water. The other accounts tell us about Peter. He beckoned Peter to come. Peter says, Is it you, Lord, if it's you, beckon me to come out? And he comes out and he walks on the water also. And then he, he looks at the storm, he looks at the results of the storm, and he fears and starts to sink. And Jesus grabs him and says, Oh, you little faith, and they climb the boat. And then it says, Immediately they're on the other side. So all of these things are happening. And then the crowd realizes that the disciples had left without Jesus, but then they couldn't find Jesus, so they got into boats and they went over to Capernaum, and then they find Jesus. And like, hey, when did you get here? And he said, well, I tell you the truth, you don't look for me because of the signs that you saw that I had done, which chapter, earlier in the chapter, it says they followed him because of the signs and all of the things that he had done, healing diseases. But in reality, they're following, and Jesus tells us why. He says, you're not following me because of the signs. You're following me because I filled your belly yesterday, and you want me to fill your belly again today. And of course, then they go into the dialogue, well, what, you know, what are the works of God that we should be doing? And he said, there's only one work, to believe in the one whom he sent. And they said, well, show us, show us a sign that we know that you're the one. And then they, they even took it further. They said, look, Moses gave our fathers in the desert bread every day. And he said, well, I am the bread of life. And he said, look, Moses didn't give you the bread. My father in heaven did. And he says, the bread that I give is living bread. And if you eat this bread, you'll never die. And they said, well, give us this bread every day. They're just revealing the truth of the matter is they want their bellies filled. They want a king that can supply their needs, not a king who is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's not who he is. It's what he can do for them. It's the genie in the bottle. And so we come to our text in chapter 6 and verse 41. Let's pick up here uh, all this dialogue. Remember last week we talked in verse 27 where he says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, uh, but for the food which endures in the everlasting life. And so we come, we come now to verse 41. It says, Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? So they're, they're like, who, who is this guy? I mean, don't we know him? How is he saying that he come down from heaven? What is this? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up that last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be all, or they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and has learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, 
Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the man and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. Verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now you may be sitting here this morning and you would be like, yes, this is a difficult saying. What is he saying? What? I mean, it doesn't make sense. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. What does this mean? And so we may not be much different than them. Because we're like, what? So, let's go on a little further. When Jesus, verse 61, knew in himself that his disciples, who? His disciples. His disciples complained about this. He said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is not the Spirit who gives life. Excuse me. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now let me stop here for a moment. He's talking to people who have been following him, and he's definitively talking to his disciples. And he is saying, look, the words that I'm speaking to you, they are spirit and they are life. They mean more than what they seem on the surface. There's more to what I'm saying here. That's like he's been talking since chapter 3 with Nicodemus. You must be born again. He's like, should I climb in my mother's womb a second time? How is this going to happen? He's like, no. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit, the spirit, gives birth to spirit. Then the woman at the well. If you knew the man who asked you for a drink, you would have asked me for a drink, and I would have given you living water that you would thirst no more. And she says, well, give me that water every day so I don't have to come down to the well. He's like, you're missing it. And he's still talking that way. And they're still missing. Then he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. That's big. That's big. He says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. So not singular, but they, plural. He knew who they were and who would betray him. So he knew one of his twelve that was going to betray him. And then of the crowd, he knew who they were that didn't believe. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, listen to verse 40, excuse me, 66. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Walked with him no more. You might underline another circle that in your Bible. Then Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away also? Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
you have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We stop there. Now, we just estimated a few moments ago that of the 5,000 men that were fed, there was probably upwards of 15,000, maybe even 20,000 people that were following him. And so they got into boats. It could be assumed that the whole crowd came over. It's possible that in the synagogue of Capernaum, there could have been this swell of people following Jesus, upwards of 15,000 people. That'd be like a mega church in Capernaum. The mega synagogue. <laughs> Many of his disciples turned and followed him no more. And he turned to the twelve. It might lead someone to believe that pretty much everybody else turned away. And he said to the twelve, what about you? Do you also want to go? Because this is, all of a sudden it's getting hard. The measurement is getting more difficult. And so what I would like to do, I would just like to, today, I'd like to talk from my heart to all of us. Because it's, it's speaking to me. I think the Holy Spirit is speaking to me and to us as followers of Christ. I'd like to bring our attention to the question and statement that Jesus makes in verse 62. It says, what then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? The word what there is actually not in the text. If you have your Bible with you and it's open to the pages, you'd see that it is in italics. I don't know if they have 62 up there. It may be in italics on the board. But it's in italics, and if you read the preface of your Bible, and if you have a study Bible, you would realize that the translators put certain words that are implied by the text, but are not in the text. They put it in italics so that you would know that it's not part of the original text. So it really reads this way. If then you should see, if then you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before. And the implication is, what about you? What about you then? If you saw the Son of Man ascend and be seated or be where he was beforehand. Two things that Jesus unequivocally is revealing in this text. Number one, he's deity. He existed before he was born. Only God can say that. Does that make sense? God is eternal. He existed before his birth. Every human being ever born or created did not exist before conception. But life begins at conception. Can I get an amen? amen? That's why we make a stand for rights for life. It's massive. But he is saying, where I was before the throne of God. Secondly, he's revealing to them that he will be making his ascension, which means he's going to have a resurrection. So it's really implying several things, that he's going to ascend, 
but he's also going to raise from the dead because he's already told us he knew who it was that was going to betray him from the beginning of his ministry. He knew. And for the cross, he came. So he's giving revelation knowledge. Now here's, here's the piece he's asking. How would you be different? How would you, if then, you saw Messiah ascend and be seated on the throne, how would you live different? Because it's about believing. When he's giving a teaching about feeding on him and finding life in him, they're like focusing on how can we eat his flesh? Drink his blood. What does he mean by this? And they're like, I can't follow him anymore. And they all went back to their homes. He looks at the twelve, he says, that's not what I'm talking about. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. And life is in me. Life is in me. So this relationship is in Christ. He is the Word. He is the living Word of God. Remember John on the island of Patmos was given a book, and he says he ate the book. Now, pause for a moment. Do you think that he was like, shh. <coughs> you think I could get some water down here? Pretty sure he was not consuming the book. That way he was eating the book. He was becoming a, the fabric of who he was. He was taking to heart what was written in the book. Just like you and I taking what the living word of God this representation of Christ and we are consuming it and letting it become the fabric of who we are, it's converting our DNA, so to speak. It's transforming us from the inside out. Does that make sense? It's becoming part of who we are. And so, getting into the wheelbarrow, what does that look like? The chasm between where I live today and where I ought to be living, for all of us, it may be varying lengths of the chasm of unbelief. Here's the video. Verse 42 in the text reveals to us that the people are like, wait, he says he came from heaven, but isn't this Jesus? And don't we know his mom and dad? Chapter 7 starts off with the first five verses. His brothers are like teasing him. Which, by the way, I think it's Psalm 69. If you read Psalm 69, you would discover that it's the early life of Christ. And it was a lonely life because he was being made, it was ridiculed. They even made songs about him. The drunkards made songs about him. Because he, he didn't fit in the norm. He, there was something different about Jesus in his early days. His brothers, verse 5 of chapter 7 says, his brothers did not believe in him. They didn't believe in him. So, what happened to James, the brother of Jesus, who, after 
after his death, resurrection, and ascension, became a believer and got in the wheelbarrow, became the head of the church in Jerusalem for over 30 years, all the way to 62 AD, where he was martyred for his faith in his half-brother, who didn't believe the 33 years. What changed? He was there. What about Jude? Listen, by the way, James, the brother of Jesus, it's attributed to him that he wrote the New Testament letter, James. Five significant chapters in your New Testament. What about Jude? Jude didn't believe. The death, the resurrection, the ascension, Jude becomes a believer. So much so, he, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens out the letter of Jude. One chapter. One very powerful and significant letter of the New Testament. Transforming them. What happened to those guys? What changed in their lives? How did they go from being a fan? They said in chapter... Turn your Bibles. Just go to chapter 7. Look at this. This is fascinating. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. This is now, this is like six months before the crucifixion. This is now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So it's obligatory for all able-bodied males to get to Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And so his brothers, verse 3, therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. They're like messing with him. They don't believe. They were fans. They were seeing the works. They're like everybody. Hold that. That was amazing. Come on. That's kind of cool. Good job, Jesus. Can you do that again? But hey, you can do all this stuff. You should get down to Judea and just do it openly. Because, like, I mean, you should be known all this stuff. Ooh, you're popular. You know how siblings can be, right? The only friend who gets all the attention. I'm a real deal. So how did they go from being a fan to being a player where their entire lives were radically transformed? I mean, we could go down the list. Matthew. I mean, he left all. Peter. He left all. They were, they were fishermen and they left their gear in the boats. John, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they left their dad and all their gear in the boat and they followed Jesus. They left it all. They left it all. And every one of them, except for John, was martyred for their faith. Their lives were changed. And so that's the question I wonder today. And we're going to come to the community table. Where I live today, What then if I saw Jesus ascend, seated on his throne? 
We have one story in the Old Testament for sure that reveals a man who responds to this very thing. Isaiah the prophet, chapter 6. He said, it was in the year that King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord seated, high and exalted in the train of his robe of the temple. And there were angels and seraphim and cherubim about him. And his response to seeing the King of glory on his throne, he hears the conversation in heaven. Whom shall we send and who will go for us? And Isaiah speaks up and he says, here am I. Send me, send me to become a sent one, an apostle. He is saying the same thing to you and I today. Who will go? Whom shall we send and who will go for us? To be all in, to get in the wheelbarrow, say, that's me. I want to live it all. I want to give it all. I want the chasm of where I live today and where I ought to be living in my faith. I want that to get smaller and smaller to where I am becoming what Jesus intends for me to be as his disciple, to be abundantly pleasing to the Lord as his child. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to invite those who are going to serve with you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Pastor Sam, if you can come. We tell you that we serve open communion. We invite you as believers to partake of communion. And what I would like us to do as we come to the communion table this morning, I'd like us to consider where we are today. And you might already know some things the Lord wants to do different in your life. Transformation that He wants to do. The living. Uh, Larry, can I just share? I, I was so blessed by my brother Larry. Doug, it's so good to have you with us here this morning. And just a heartbeat, my brother, he, he, he communicated with me this week just about how he wanted to help someone that he knew. And I was just so blessed by that. And that's the kind of living I'm talking about. Is that, and you know what I'm talking about. Many of us live that way throughout the day. We're in communion with the Father through Jesus. But it's just so beautiful when we, when we get to participate and we see that work manifested in our lives regularly. How much more do we want that working in our lives when we have those Jesus moments all the time? So good to have our junior hires making their way back. Guys, God bless you. Think about the chasm. Think about what holds you back. What's holding you back from giving more to Jesus in your life? More to Jesus. If it is, in fact, I'm not sure that I believe that we, like Isaiah, would see the Lord seated high and it would change on the inside. I'm going to give it all. I'm going to give it all. For some of you, I will submit. For some of you, it may mean a career change. I know for me it was. I, I had a great job in the steel industry. I was the operations general manager for the largest steel container manufacturing company west of the Mississippi. Of the nine manufacturing plants that we had on the west coast to the mountain states, I was managing five of them. And God said, more. I said, more? What does that mean? The Bible says it's to the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's to the glory of kings to search it out. As I searched it out, my wife and I sought it out. We realized that God was calling us into vocational ministry. And so we, we left it. Like Paul, 
Even though I'm just as normal as you are, I'm just as naturally minded as you are, there are days that I think, what would it have been like different had I stayed in the steel industry? How would life have been different? And then I have to say, no, God, no, I won't. Get rid of that. Because this is the life that he's called, and there's nothing that measures to the life lived solely for the kingdom. And you know what I'm talking about. And believe me, I have my days where I'm not sold for the kingdom. So I'm trying to say that. I'm just saying, what more? What would it look like? And it may be vocational change for some of you. God may be calling some of you into full-time ministry. Some of our junior hires that just came back. God may be calling you into missionary work. Missionary work to go overseas. Some of you may, some of you adults may, God may be calling you into full-time ministry to change your life dramatically like James whose life was dramatically changed and he gave his life for the kingdom. It could be like that. How would that be? Wouldn't that be cool? Look at your neighbor and say, that could be you. Come on, look at your neighbor, that could be you. I'm going to invite you to come forward and uh, if you would receive the emblems from our brothers and hold them until we can all partake, you can come down the center aisles and make your way back to our seats on the outside. We'll partake of communion together in just a few moments. I'll release you to come forward and we'll, uh, we'll walk and talk through this.